Hey everyone. As you know, I'm a huge fan of living a healthy lifestyle, including taking the right supplements. Collagen is one of my favorite supplements. It is the most abundant protein in the human body. As we grow older, we break it down faster than we can replace it. This loss affects our skin, nails, hair, muscles, joints, and tendons, bones, and gut, making us look and feel old. Totem Voss is a wellness company that created a collagen chew for a real-life person, the 78-year-old mother of the founder. As a result, the quality is unrivaled. Totem Voss chews contain equal part deep-sea Icelandic cod, domestic grass-fed beef, and organic chicken bone broth, along with companion ingredients such as vitamin C for full collagen synthesis. These varied sources address a greater range of collagen needs within the body. Their customers are reporting results with such problems as rosacea, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as improved hair, skin, and nails. Practitioners are finding the juice to be an effective tool in restoring gut health. You can find Totem Voss, that's T-O-T-U-M-V-O-S, at getchews.com. That's getchews.com. Use code DRDIVA, that's D-R-D-I-V-A, for an additional 10% off your first order. So yeah, so the response to ketamine to me is really helpful in understanding etiology and because I think it's tempting for non-psychiatric people to think like, oh, ketamine is a good treatment for depression. But really, ketamine is an amazing treatment for certain subtypes of depression. You may or may not be able to suss those out in an eval. And as I said, it may not be till post-sessions that you sit down and think, hmm, you're only moderately better. Why is that? Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode from Doctor to Patient. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Craig Heacock. He's an adolescent and adult psychiatrist and addiction specialist in Colorado. He is a co-producer and host of the Psychiatric Storytelling Podcast, Back from the Abyss and was a co-therapist and study physician in the MAPS Phase three MDMA Assistant Psychotherapy for PTSD study. He's an expert in the use of ketamine to treat depression and PTSD, and has a deep interest in the emerging psychedelic revolution in psychiatry. Dr. Heacock is a graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and did a psychiatry training at Brown University. Dr. Heacock, how are you today? It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, this is really interesting. I, I really enjoy talking to physicians who uh, have practiced Western medicine and have also started to delve into the field of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And I get many questions because this is kind of how I have chosen my path as well. I was a interventional pain management physician, then did some integrative medicine work and then found psychedelics. And now I'm, I'm actually mostly the, the work that I do now is around facilitation. So it's really been a great process for myself and very rewarding seeing the transformations that can occur with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And I'm really curious with you, like, how did you entertain the idea of psychedelics? Was it a personal transformation that led you to want to be able to find more information about these topics for your patients? Well, yeah, this is a 
long answer. I'll try to keep it relatively brief, but I've, I've been interested in psychedelics for decades. And in 19, let's see, when was that? 1997, I was in Rick Strassman's DMT experiments at UNM. And he wrote a book about that called The Spirit Molecule. Yep, so I was one of the volunteers. Book. Yeah. And I remember telling him during that time I was applying to med school and he said, oh, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a psychiatrist and I want to work with psychedelics. And this was what, 20, 24 years ago. And he said, oh, that's, that's a long ways off. He said, I hope for that too, but that ain't coming anytime soon. Wow. So it's always been in the back of my mind. Um, and then, you know, like so many things with social change, you're like, when, when are things going to change? When, 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 when? And all of a sudden right now, I think we're in this psychedelic renaissance and thrilling time to be working in mental health. Yeah, it really is. So since you were one of the volunteers at the study in New Mexico, I've got to ask some questions because <laughs> I read that book and that was fascinating. Did you receive the control or did you receive the actual experimental medication? So it turns out they had, um, I, you know, I don't know if they were doing placebo because in the part of it I was doing was more like dose response. So yeah. he had a medium dose and a high dose. So That's right, I, got the, yeah. I got the medium dose. And then uh, I think How was that experience? <laughs> well, I didn't have the, uh, like the alien encounter or no. machine elves <laughs> or anything like that. But I had total ego dissolution and yeah. essentially the, my energetic self left my body and went out of the room somewhere. And, and it was a whole you know, wild journey that lasted like, I think it was eight minutes because yeah. it was IV. It was just a, bol a quick bolus. And then when I came Damn back, thing. I said, how long was that? I think he said like, oh, that was 11 minutes or nine and a half minutes. I thought, whew. Not, you know, not the ideal set and setting with um, a you know, eye clinic. covering in a hospital <laughs> yeah. with all this machine, you know, being monitored. So, I mean, he was a sweet guy, but it was not ideally what you'd want to do for, but we weren't doing psychedelic therapy. It was really, I think, this Experiment. Was the, you know, yeah, the first time coming back to doing human psychedelic research in 30 years. So, yeah, it was really more about safety and dose response. Post experience, did you feel, how did you feel? Did you feel like you're, I don't know, you actually had the, the ego dissolution. So you've probably felt the, the universality, the oneness experience. So that, that often changes people dramatically afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, being probably like you, being a, an achiever and driven, um, when I heard I got the medium dose, I said, <laughs> I, said I want the, I want to try the high dose. But I think it was 10 to 15% of people had a hypertensive response at the yeah. medium dose. And I did just enough to put me out of, um, qualification for the high dose so got it that's actually <laughs> some ways i feel like i got the silver medal in the strassman study like that's good but i really wanted to know, go the full you know the full experience uh but it, it definitely completely um supported my vision of like okay i want to work with these kind of compounds and and it just seemed like for years and years and years i mean i was a maps member and following psychedelic research but i just thought okay this is not happening and then in the last few years, boom, you know, ketamine is blown up and psilocybin is going to probably be coming online medically in three years and MDMA, hopefully three years. And you know, there's some people even working on um, D DMT pumps where you could do oh, very cool. carefully titrated DMT sessions in an office. Because one of the advantages of working with some, something like DMT, if you could manage the dose response um, curve of it, is it's so quick acting. 
And that's what's nice about ketamine too. You, know, you can do ketamine work or potentially maybe DMT work someday and people could leave, you know, hour and a half later you know, with the other psilocybin, with MDMA, you know, you're really in for six, seven hours minimum. So that's, that's a big time commitment, but more than that, I think that just adds a lot of cost to it. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly yeah, with the MDMA work, which I, I think, I think most people who do that work would agree that it's probably best done with a male and female therapist. So um, that's going to double the cost of it. Yeah, I'm really interested in, I mean, you, you did the MAPS training. And so you probably know a little bit more on the inside as to what's going on with MDMA. And I mean, it is in phase three currently. And I mean, I keep hearing dates and potential dates that where it's going to be legalized. And I heard end of next year. And now you're saying 2023. So, I mean, is or how close are we? Yeah. So phase three, which is the final phase before hopeful um, FDA approval is halfway done. And you may have seen these numbers. I mean, so half of phase three, I think represents, it's a hundred and some people, 150, 175. And that's half done, which is mind blowing because most phase three studies involve thousands or even tens of thousands of patients. But the effect size of MDMA has been so high that they think they're going to be able to get FDA approval with 250, 200, 300 wow. people, which I think has only ever been equaled by a few cancer drugs. Um, because they're so such, effective. Yeah. yeah. But what slowed it down, well, COVID put the brick yeah. the halt on everything. Another thing that slowed it down is to get in the, in the study, you pretty much have to have what I would call pure PTSD, meaning mm, not any other comorbid stuff like right. addiction or personality disorders or severe depression. You know, you have to come off all your psych meds if you're on those. So it's, you know, I think this is true with a lot of medical studies. Like, you know, I'm sure like with MS studies, they're trying to find people just with MS with no other conditions. Well, who are those people? But I think with trauma, it's even harder because what does trauma do to your heart? and your body and your immune system and your tendency towards substance use. I mean, trauma wrecks everything. So yeah, it sure does. So it's been, it's been difficult to find, you know, these kind of pure PTSD folks. So yeah. there's been a lot, a lot of rule outs in the early stages, people not screening in. And it's interesting you say that because uh, my last uh, client, he was looking, he had no idea about underground work and he was really interested in, in the maps um, and trying to get into one of the studies. He was a perfect candidate because of his PTSD. The problem was, was that he was taking cannabis on a regular basis mm -hmm. for pain for the last 10 years. And that was an exclusion criteria and he was not able to, to participate. So he was really bummed out because he, he fit all, he checked all the boxes, but he just, because of the cannabis history. So we did a session on his, a very first session that he's ever had was with us yeah, about three weeks ago, he had a remarkable, remarkable response to it, and um, he's doing really great. He's with my integration coach, and and um, they're they're really making some headways with him. So it's it's really rewarding in that sense. But I'm really looking forward to seeing what's on the other side after these trials are completed and after it's FDA approved. Mm -hmm. I mean, to find you know, if I have somebody come to my office for initial eval with severe depression or PTSD, and they don't have an active substance problem. I'm amazed. Yeah. You know, I'm going to say, like, yeah. how are you doing that? Like, how are you suffering so much and not using substances? That's, yeah. that's amazing. So it's, it, to me, but that's, you know, part of the thing that MAPS is facing is, I mean, you have people in just some of the most horrific 
psychi- psychological psychiatric distress there is and um yet you just have to somehow have that hold that not have really any other significant stuff going on right and are you allowed to be on antidepressants um i mean i guess obviously they could be coming off of them prior to getting on the mdma therapy but are you, are you okay with having a history of antidepressants in your system yeah. Yeah, you can have had a history of them, but to be in the study, you essentially have to be have willing to, be to come off all psych meds. Yeah. And even um, lately, they've decided you can't have had any ketamine exposure Oh, really? for a few months because ketamine, A, is, is such a powerful antidepressant, and B, has such utility for PTSD, not as a cure for PTSD, but as a way to alleviate PTSD. Yeah. So they were worried that, and a lot of people now are doing ketamine treatment for PTSD, so they had to... Uh, exclude that. And that's hard too, because, you know, I've had people that I would like to refer to the study and they're on maintenance ketamine. It's keeping them, keeping their head above water, but, you know, to go off it for months and have that big washout and then I know. get the study, that's it's tough. It's brutal. Mm-hmm. You know, in your, in your world as a psychiatrist, I mean, you see lots of mental health issues and having all the tools at your disposal is fantastic. So what is your criteria, you know, when you treat a patient who's suffering from mental health disease, do you go straight towards SSRIs or conventional antidepressants, or do you go the alternate route? Do you do the ketamine? I mean, what's, what's your algorithm? Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about maybe treatment resistant depression, which is a sure. really common thing. So that's actually a huge umbrella, which represents, you know, hundred thousand different etiologies, but, um, it used to be that I would recommend ketamine, for example, as like a third or fourth or fifth line thing. Maybe if people are suicidal or um, just really not wanting to do a daily med. But for specific types of depression, there's really nothing else better. So now I have people coming for initial eval and I'll, I'll say, you know, we could um, do X and Y or start this medication. But uh, if you're open to it, I think we should go right to IV ketamine and do a couple treatments and see. And people are into that. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. And, and then when I describe the side effects, okay, you know, depression meds, common side effects, weight gain, sexual side effects, constipation, sedation, you know, ketamine really only has three side effects. It can make you motion sick. Um, it can raise your blood pressure and it definitely can be scary if you don't set the um, setting properly. And, but a lot of times people hear those and they imbalance, especially the the antidepressants that are for severe depression. They're effective, but they just have a lot of nasty side effects. Um, But I'm still, I'm not one of those psychiatrists who, you know, I want to use what works. So SSRIs are, and I've talked about this a lot in my podcast, SSRIs are not depression meds. For most people, they're anti-rumination, anti-obsessional meds. And so for people with, you know, pure OCD or OCD-like syndromes, SSRIs are great. For many people, um, somebody walks in the door, uh, you know, with significant depression. I'm thinking usually, you know, lamotrigine, which is probably my favorite med, <laughs> and ketamine. Uh, you know, I hope very soon that we're going to have MDMA and psilocybin as options too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's going to be long at all. And I can imagine where, in the very near future, people come in to do MDMA treatments for trauma that they'll be on various depression meds or psych meds, and then we'll taper off those for the MDMA treatment. Maybe use ketamine as a bridge to prevent- Breakthrough. Uh, yeah, any breakthrough depression as people do their med taper and basically get them ready for their MDMA sessions. Yeah. 
That's that's actually smart. I like that idea. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. So when you, with your protocol for for ketamine, is it more like what I've seen a lot of these clinics that are opening up now? It's like you do four to six treatments, you know, one weekly or even two weekly. I don't know what the studies show in terms of the frequency that's that's optimal for for relief. Um, or is it just basically one at a time and then you just kind of reevaluate in between? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a great question. So the question is not whether ketamine is effective. I mean, ketamine, I would argue is the best thing to come along since lamotrigine. So I would argue it's the best depression treatment we've had. See, lamotrigine came online in 94, so 27 years. Um, the question with ketamine is all about root, IV, PO, IM dose, uh, mostly subdissociative or fully dissociative, and then frequency. And there's huge controversy on all those. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that a couple of the original studies in the aughts were done with this protocol of uh, six low-dose IVs over two, three, four weeks. And like so many things in medicine, you know, however the original studies happen, people just latch onto that. Like, okay, this is the way you know, we need to take this vitamin. You got to stand on your right leg and close your eyes and say your prayer and swallow it in one gulp. Or ketamine has to be 0.5 milligram per kilogram, six treatments over three weeks. Uh, but what I think what we're finding, it's there's sort of a bifurcation in ketamine treatment. So the anesthesiologists and ER docs who run clinics, they tend to stick to that. The psychiatrists who are doing ketamine are mostly doing what I'm doing, which is using substantially higher doses at way less frequency. So what I've found is most everyone, no matter how profoundly vegetatively catatonically depressed they are, will get mostly better or all the way better with two treatments. And what, so 0.5 mix per kg is typically the start one. So what are you using? Yeah. So I usually start people IV 0.7, 0 0.75, which again doesn't sound like much. That, that's a 50% bigger dose. And you know, the dose response curve of ketamine is very steep. steep I mean, the, yes. the, the difference between uh, 0 0.1, 0 0.5, 0 0.9 is like the difference between, you know, a Calistoga wagon, you know, a go-kart and a Tesla. Like they're all <laughs> vehicles, but like it is yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. So I usually try to do a, a sub-dissociative first treatment. Not, not to scare people, but get them right up to the point of ego dissolution. And then the second treatment is what I call deep dip or fully, fully dissociative treatment. I think what the thing is- And what's that lot, dose? That's usually 0 0.8, 0 0.9, okay, 0 0.95. Got it. Um, a lot of people don't want to do that dose with their patients because you need a lot of support because people can get scared. You may need to hold their hand. You may need to do some intense post-session processing. I mean, it's a very intense treatment. And so my medical assistant and I, she's awesome. And, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm, you know, strong psychological reactions or trauma catharsis or some of the stuff that comes out of these high dose. I mean, that's what we do. But I think if you're doing the ketamine tr treatment model, like the dialysis clinic, where you have six people lined up, you know, in chairs watching the Eagles game or something, <laughs> you, you can't be giving people fully dissociative dose of ketamine. So I mean, the cynical part of me says economically, you know, it makes sense why people are doing these low dose multiple ones because that's a lot more profitable and it's just easier. I think, I think it's effective as well, but we don't have good data yet. You know, this whole idea of say six or eight low dose IVs versus a couple higher dose IVs like I do mm -hmm. and a lot of psychiatrists do. I think that data is coming. Um, 
but it would make sense to me, like if you were going to treat anything like someone with a severe migraine, if you said, okay, we're going to give you half of an ibuprofen every day for two weeks, or we're going to give you four ibuprofen now. I mean, I mean, dose matters. So why, you know, why wouldn't it matter with ketamine? Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical eBooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. And I agree with you. I mean, my experience when I've done K treatments for treatment resistant depression is that I do an escalating dose just to get them acclimated to the medicine. Mm-hmm. So I'll always start with 0.5 and it depends on how their response is for 0.5. If they're really scared, then, you know, I'm going to go really slow in the escalation. So I might go, you know, uh, 0.6 point, you know, and then maybe stay there. I will do probably six treatments, you know, uh, one or two a week. Oh, and then if they have a really good response, then I can probably go to four treatments, but I'll be escalating with the last one will be at 0.9 or 1.0 mix per cake. And at, by the time they get to that, that, that 1.0 or 0.9, they are kind of used to it. And then they're already feeling better, you know, because their depression is starting to, um, you know, recede. And so they're anticipating, you know, the next session with, with optimal results. Yeah. My only thing is, is that, and maybe this is something that I need to work on, but definitely integration or, you know, some sort of therapy is needed in between and post because I've seen people who've had this type of algorithm and within three or four weeks, they're, they're back in a depression. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 my guess is, is because there's not enough, um, you know, post care that's present for them. Or they might need a maintenance booster, you know, which is fine. You know, I don't think it's necessary to do the sequential, you know, series again. But I think a booster would be appropriate. And I don't know what's, you know, in your experience, yeah. what you're. Well, I think etiology really matters. And again, yeah, you know, I've talked about this in my podcast. How depression is the, depression is like saying pain. You know, we talk about depression like it's a thing, but it's it's a huge, you know, final common pathway of all sorts of things. But what I've found is that people, for example, in a bipolar or mixed depression, ketamine mm-hmm. is a home run. And they can often do, for example, like a September, October, November, December treatment, and that will hold them for the year. Wow. Yeah, because you know the fall, winter is such a brutal time for people with bipolar yeah. disorder. Um, but if people's depression is coming out of PTSD primarily, yeah, they're probably going to need to do ketamine. I would say my chronic PTSD folks, most of them are on uh, monthly maintenance. Okay. And that again doesn't fix their PTSD, but it just it just calms down the forest fire of their fear and 
helps them to function. Uh, and then I see other people who come in in more of a situational crisis that they can do a couple of treatments and I don't see them again. Mm-hmm. So you know, everybody, when they come in, wants to know, you know, what's the algorithm, how often? And I say, look, first, we're going to see if you respond. Correct. And, and actually, the resp- response to ketamine will actually help us understand more. Is this a primary mood disorder, PTSD, some other kind of... Or, for example, I've had some people come in super depressed who didn't respond at all. You know, I said to them, this happened like last month. And I, I told the guy, I said, I'll bet you $1,000 that you're better. Um, but luckily he didn't bet me, but he didn't improve at all. And he had hypersomnic, uh, kind of vegetative, what I call black bear depression, like the home run thing for ketamine, huh. didn't respond at all. And then as we had a post session, I said, we need to understand why. And then he just out of the blue, he said, you know, I think I should get a sleep study. I'm like, what? He's a skinny, skinny guy, way skinnier than me. He's like, yeah, I snore so badly that people can't even be like within 50 feet of me. And so then we do a sleep study. He's got severe sleep apnea. Wow. I thought, oh, well, my gosh, this, his medical problem was making it so we couldn't treat the, you know, again, this is a classic thing that this is why we go to med school. But it just, it took a failed course of ketamine for then him to start thinking like, oh, maybe I should what tell you more about my snoring. Mm, so, that's so yeah, so the response to ketamine to me is it's really helpful in understanding etiology and because I think it's tempting for non-psychiatric people to think like, oh, the ketamine is a good for treatment for depression. But really, ketamine is an amazing treatment for certain subtypes of depression. Right. You treatment may or may not yeah. be able to suss those out in an eval. And as yeah. I said, it may not be till post-sessions that you sit down and think, hmm, you're only moderately better. Why is that? Hmm. Um, you know, for some people I've found, uh, a lot of people with, with a primary mood disorder if they just do ketamine and they don't have any med underneath it, it won't hold. But put lamotrigine underneath, so daily lamotrigine plus ketamine, for many people like that is magic ticket. Ah, uh, I see. So lamotrigine is just helping the keep Stabilize. the floor. Yeah, but then when they have breakthrough stuff, they come in and do ketamine. And uh, I would say, gosh, I don't even know, two-thirds of my maintenance ketamine patients are on lamotrigine with ketamine. Right. Um, now, you probably know this, but your listeners may not. But tricky thing about lamotrigine, you have to do kind of a quick washout before ketamine. So it has a 38-hour half-life, so that's tricky. I usually have people skip it for two doses. And, and then you have to bump the ketamine dose probably 25% higher to compensate for sort of okay. compensate for the dissociative blocking effects of lamotrigine. Right. So interesting. It's like, that's the one medicine that I like to use, you know, instead of all the other psychedelics that are out there, because you don't have to really taper or discontinue most antidepressants, but I, that the lamotrigine, I, I wasn't aware of the washout period. That makes sense because there are some clients that I've had that, you know, I, I left them on it and they just didn't have that great of a mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. Even when people skip a couple doses, I find they, you can still push them in deep into full dissociation, but they pop out. It's almost like yeah. they're like a cork, you know, that the lamotrigine will only, even if you hit them with a big dose, will only let them stay down in full dissociation uh, for a few minutes and they pop out. But that doesn't seem, again, we don't know, is it that full dissociation is a goal or how much time you spend there? I mean, I definitely have some patients, especially my trauma patients, report much, much longer lasting, deeper healing sessions, the longer they're in a dissociative state. Again, this yeah. is just you know, self-report. I don't know if right. that's actually the yeah. case. And then um, just for listeners, you know, what is the definition of, this, of dissociation? You know, what mm-hmm. constitutes dissociation? Yeah. 
right? That that's a word like depression or panic that's thrown up thrown around a lot. When I tell when I speak of ketamine, what I'm meaning is to be dissociated is to lose your uh, autobiographical self, your ego. As I tell people in my office, I said, you know, when we when you hit full dissociation, there will be no Fort Collins, there will be no International Space Station, there will be no Dairy Queen, there will be no Jimmy or whatever. Like you're going to just sort of um, melt into. Oftentimes, I find it this kind of subterranean, um, tectonics plate magma chamber. A lot of people have that sort of geological experience. Um, that is different, though. You know, when trauma therapists talk about dissociation, that's actually used in a very different way. I'm glad that you mentioned that because when we talk about dissociation in the, in the clinical sense, we're we're often talking about people going into this kind of checked out numbing. You know, if you imagine someone being assaulted, that a defense strategy is to just kind of take your brain offline. And while the assault's happening, you're there, but you're not there. You're just gone. Right. Um, so that's the more common usage. Uh, right. Yeah. So that you're right. Thank you for pointing that out. That is tricky that we use that word, a very yeah. important word in two totally different contexts to mean context. Different yeah. And and so the ego disillusion is very powerful. You know, a lot of people go through that with other psychedelic medications. You know, psilocybin at a specific dose can you can have that ego dissolution or what's called the ego death. Other substances like ayahuasca that can happen as well. What's unique about the ketamine? I mean, also with with um, DMT, you could have that experience. And the, the the really advantage, if you want to call it an advantage, for those two ketamine and DMT, it's quick. You know, it's it's an experience that's you know ten to twenty minutes. You know, and you're back. Mm -hmm. But it can be so psychologically impactful for the individual that's going through that experience. I've, I've had it done before many times on my own. And I, it's, it's a very, it's, and it's interesting how you can compare something that's synthetic, like a ketamine versus something that's like the DMT or the ayahuasca or psilocybin. It's like it, the ketamine is so very digital. And, mm -hmm. and that's how I describe it. It's mm -hmm. just, it's synthetic. It's not plant-based. It's not natural. The other, other, it's very, it, it's just, it's hard to describe unless you, Unless you can very relate, organic. you've gone through it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think the tryptamine psychedelics are very organic of life, of connection, of nature. Yeah, and ketamine is like being shot into a hard drive. Yeah. You know, <laughs> sort of like a spinning centrifuge magma chamber hard drive video game. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And one of the protocols or cocktails that I like to use, I like to use all three for my clients. I used, I, I use, and I, I don't have to use them in large doses. So I use MDMA. I put them in that for a couple of hours, and then I have, have them drink the psilocybin tea. And then right when they finish the tea, I'll go ahead and do an intramuscular of, of ketamine at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. So by the time that that ketamine wears off, the, the psilocybin starts to take off. And I found it to be very useful and people have phenomenal results with that treatment protocol. And I don't have to go and give high doses. And I think it's just because they work, they potentiate one another and they work synergistically and, and they give the outcome that they're looking for and that I'm wanting without having to um, worry about side effects of not going in really high on dosing. Yeah, I think you, you bring up a good point there that so much of this is art and this is the art of medicine. And, like we, yeah. it, and it's going to be really fun and challenging to figure out what are the best ways to use these things that come online. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, anyone for, let's just talk to take ketamine, you know, it's a compound that's been around for 50 years. We don't know the best ways to use it in mental health, but we're learning. 
but yeah. it's great stuff. And I, I'm often wondering like, what did I do before ketamine? I think the yeah, answer right. was, yeah, I hospitalized tons of people. I had a lot of people on handfuls of atypical antipsychotics and I sent people to ECT regularly. I mean, I still send wow. some people to ECT, but almost all the people I sent to ECT do ketamine now. And what, oh my gosh, I feel badly. Some of the people that I sent yeah. to ECT and some of the long-term memory issues they have, and this was pre-ketamine, but I just wish they could have, we could have happened now and we yeah. could have yeah. let them try that first. How do you think when these um, psychedelics, specifically MDMA and psilocybin, when they become legalized, how are they going to go about allowing physicians like myself and yourself to prescribe and treat with these medicines? I mean, I do it, I have the experience, but I'm not a psychiatrist, you know? So are they gonna only allow people in the mental health field to be prescribing these medications? Mm -hmm. So what I've heard with MDMA, and, and this may have changed, this, this is what I heard maybe eight months ago, is that the tentative plan is that MAPS will be the central pharmacy. So MAPS will produce and distribute MDMA directly and they will send it directly to authorized physicians who will then be responsible to distribute it. Now, uh, what does that mean to be an authorized physician? Right. Does that mean you have to have done the MAPS training or are they going to have like a prescriber program? I, that's still being worked out with the FDA, but clearly you're going to have to have some relationship with MAPS. So yep. you can't just be a dermatologist in Dayton right. and, and just like, hey, I, you know, I want to order up uh, 100 doses of MDMA for MAPS. Like, that's not going to happen. Right. That's what they're thinking of MDMA. But, you know, psilocybin doesn't have this one champion behind it. You know, MAPS is the MDMA champion. And I, I mean, I can't imagine that you can go pick it up at Walgreens. Right. But, um, you know, it's already essentially been legalized, psilocybin has in in Oregon. And I wouldn't be surprised if it gets legalized in Colorado in the next four to five years. So then we could be like where we are with weed, where with marijuana, there's yeah, a exactly. medical, right? There's a medical track. There's a legalized track. And a I'm really hoping with psilocybin that it's medicalized first yeah, because it's such a powerful substance. I just hate for it to just kind of break out into the mass mainstream suddenly and then bad things happen. And then, okay, exactly. we got to shut it down. It would be, I hope, hope, hope that we get a few years of medicalization to just you know build some respect for this compound and and practice using it before we just bust it loose and the issue is is that i mean I, i'm right outside of dc and so dc had passed the ballot uh, initiative 81 which went into force this past year and, and it, it essentially decriminalizes the uses of psychedelics um including psilocybin so with that being said, what I've seen and heard is that there are a lot more people that are just more curious and are getting their hands on it. Mm -hmm. They're not doing this in, in a, um, you know, in a clinical setting or, you know, where there's intentions and, and, you know, the, uh, a whole intention of healing, but it's more for recreational usage and, and for people to just to experiment with. So that's what I'm scared of, you know, these municipalities that across the nation that have decriminalized that's where you're, I feel that's when you're going to see these problems where people are going to have issues with overdosing or having overdosing and dying. I'm not worried about psilocybin. That's not going to happen, mm -hmm. but is it could lead to an individual who is on psilocybin and they do things that could be harmful to themselves or other people. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah. These, you know, these are um, powerful substances. They can be powerfully healing and, you know, 
bad things happened in the 60s when people took too much yeah. LSD and took too much DMT. And, and that's why the whole movement, you know, mm-hmm. that's why it was, the, you know, deemed uh, a schedule one drug. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we're seeing in Colorado, I don't know if you're seeing this, but again, I did a podcast episode on this, is that, you know, with the commercialization of marijuana, there's been an arms race of, of competition who can make the strongest stuff. And so it used to be who could make this, you know, breed the strongest sativa flower. But now it's just no pure THC. So it's like, it's almost like the people in Colorado said, yeah, we're going to legalize beer and wine. And then now we're f- six years in, like mm, people want Everclear. Like, <laughs> there, I mean, really, because, you know, dabbing THC, Strongest. I tell my patients, like, it's like Everclear. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's from the marijuana plant, but it is not. You know, Everclear is not like beer in any way, shape, no. or form. They're not. No. And so people, you know, reg, I'm regularly seeing people have psychotic breaks from THC, which 10, 15 years ago, if someone said, hey, you're going to regularly see people having psychotic breaks with THC, I would have been unimaginable. It's a, it's a staple in my practice now because especially young men are saying, hey, it's cheaper and more powerful just to go straight to the THC extract. And you know, some percentage of them have a genetic probably vulnerability to psychosis and flip out and do often violent, scary things. And fortunately, it seems with the THC-induced psychosis, it usually clears once people stop using. But um, but yeah, you wonder what would what would happen, you know, if psilocybin uh, is is legalized. What kind of extracts might people have? Right, yeah. right. And it's interesting you talk about THC. And I'm curious is how I want to find out a little bit later and discuss how you're using it in your practice. But the THC, I, I have the the SNP where that can if I I can have THC induced psychosis, and so it really makes sense for me because I've had you know a handful of really really bad trips with mm-hmm. THC. So, and then when I had, you know, my genetic sequencing done and I mean, or it, my DNA stuff done, it showed that I had that propensity to have uh, psychosis with THC and it's, it's a real thing, but it's, it, it really goes to tell you that, you know, um, getting your DNA done, it's, it's, it's very, it's very valuable, not only with the THC component, but across the board. Yeah. I spend so much of my practice talking to people about sleep and weed. I mean, I joke with my my daughter sometimes, like I'm a sleep and weed doctor. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my the thing I try to talk to my patients with with marijuana is like, look, think of it like alcohol and dr- drink beer and wine if you're going to drink. Please, you know, I did some with my alcoholics. It's like, if you're going to drink, drink beer and wine. Don't drink hard liquor, and uh, because the window of safety for the pure THC compounds or you know Everclear vodka is very small, especially if you're vulnerable. So, so I think people can kind of get that, that, you know, there, there are safer ways to use cannabis and there are less safe ways, just like alcohol. And, you know, if you tend towards alcohol problems, you either probably shouldn't drink or you should probably stick to beer. Um, so it seems, you know, it seems like there's something with the CBD THC balance that the CBD is like the brakes and THC is the accelerator. As long as there's enough CBD in there, you can get potentially the benefits of both. Exactly. Um, but boy, yeah, you start messing around with unopposed THC, which again, I think can be a really powerful treatment like for somatic-based trauma work. I know a bunch of people who are doing that, but it has to be very carefully titrated because you can send people you know, quickly into a pretty agitated, delusional place. State. And, and for, your, for your practice, I mean, are you using cannabis primarily for sleep or do you, use it, do you have any other indications in which you use cannabis? I... I'll encourage um, some of my people to use 
like CBD THC gummies for, for okay. sleep, yeah. um, heavier in the CBD. But for some reason, having a little bit of THC in there seems to help with sleep, which is interesting because if you're dependent on THC, you're using pure THC preparations, your sleep is shot. Right. Um, but you know, there's something that's having a little bit in there helps. Um, and again, if you, if you look at uh, side effect profile, and we look at the common sleep meds, the benzos, Ambien, um, Remeron, um, yeah. tr even Trazodone, you know, th those all have some really side significant effects. side effects. And so if you're looking at, well, a CBD gummy with a little THC in it, I mean, for someone who's truly having a lot of sleep problems, I mean, that's arguably much safer. Yeah. Um, so, but in, get, in general, I'm just trying to give people this idea of brakes and accelerator. Think of CBD as the brakes. Like if you're going to use THC, fine, but you have to balance it. You have to use it mindfully. Um, you know, if, if you wake it up using it in the morning, you know, I think you got to ask yourself <laughs> why? Like if, if I wake up and have a beer, I could say, oh, I just had one beer when I woke up. Well, to me, that's like people that wake and bake. Like if you have to wake up and smoke, you just should ask yourself why why like, yeah. what exactly are you are you doing yeah exactly so what's the ratio from thc to cbd that you recommend people stick with for sleep purposes yeah you know it's it's interesting i typically because it just seems like such a wide range with people i used to recommend but i often say now there's a couple of dispensaries in town for Collins that have really knowledgeable people and i'll just often just say you know go to this dispensary <laughs> and ask them, tell them you, you're not here to get high or you're here and just ask the recommendations. And that seems to work really well. Mm -hmm. Like they, they actually have a lot of expertise in that and mm -hmm. the, the different strains. So I don't think that's true at all the dispensaries, but there's a couple of Fort Collins that have really knowledgeable people. So I usually just defer to them because um, it does seem highly variable. Yeah. It could, yeah. It depends on their metabolism and, mm -hmm. and there's so many different things that can uh, take effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, tell us a little bit about your your podcast. So I have a podcast called Back from the Abyss, and it's a psychiatric storytelling podcast. So it's a little bit like This American Life meets Psychiatry. So we have awesome. people come on and tell their abyss story, how they plunged into psychiatric darkness and how they got out. And we have cool music and sound <laughs> beds. And, you know, I... It's not really an interview. It's a, I mean, my voice is sometimes on there talking to people, but it's really more people telling their deep dive into psychosis or addiction. Or the most recent episode is called Spiritual Gaslighting. It's a woman who is in a Christian cult and sexually violated and then found a lot of healing through running and friendship and finally psilocybin. Wow. So um, it's really fun. It's, it's a lot. The episodes are a lot of work <laughs> to make. Yeah, but I can imagine. It's a... Uh, Super meaningful. Originally, the people were largely my patients. And then now it's mostly people who are approaching me wanting to tell their story. That's awesome. How long have you been doing it for? It's been two years. Yeah, we just started okay. the third season. Wow. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. So if anyone's interested, we have probably, probably a third of the episodes have a psychedelic flair. Hmm. Um, we have a really amazing story called MDMA and the Inner Healer, which is the story of the first guy I worked with in the MAP study describing how he healed his sexual assault through the through the MDMA trial. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. Mm, I'll have to check it out. There's a really another powerful one called um, Mushrooms in the Magic of Life for a woman who experienced really awful physical and emotional abuse by her father, was finally able to come to peace with that through psilocybin and MDMA work. 
So hmm. fantastic. Well, Dr. Hecock, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And, and for our listeners, where can people find more about you? So Back From the Abyss is on all the podcast platforms. And my website is also the website for the podcast. That's craighecockmd.com, C-R-A-I-G-H-E-A-C-O-C-K-M-D.com. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. 